Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Hallelujah. Y'all doing okay this morning? I know it was a, it was a week, um, but God's good. All right, let's pray over the word. We're going to be in Joshua 3 today. We're going to tackle that chapter. I feel like I have a lot to say, so forgive me if I'm a little bit scattered. But listen anyway. <laughs> so Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for the freedom and liberty to gather in the house of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for the sweet presence of the Holy Spirit that is with us this morning. Jesus, you said that you would not leave us as orphans, but you would come to us, Lord. And we acknowledge this morning the fulfillment of that promise in the person of the Holy Spirit. How, how sweet you are to us. Lord, as we look to your word, we come to, to feast, to hear, to chew on all that you've said, believing it to be bread to our souls. Feed us today, great shepherd. We need you. We need you in this hour, Lord. We need you for our families, our community. Let the gospel go forth with clarity in this region. And let Jesus alone be glorified. And every saint said, Amen. Amen. Well, I was in a book recently by R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey was an evangelist. He was a friend of D.L. Moody. In the 1890s, he pastored what's now called Moody Church, and he led what's now called Moody Institute. He wrote a score of books, primarily with an evangelistic lean. But he wrote a book called How to Bring Men to Christ that, that did really well, and a lot of people found really helpful in their day-to-day -day evangelism. And so many began to ask him to write a follow-up book um, on how to lead people in the power of God. And so he wrote a book called How to Obtain the Fullness of Power in Christian Life and Service. And he opened by making these comments that I want you to listen to this morning. He wrote, For many earnest hearts, there is rising a cry for more power. More power in our personal conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. More power in our work for others. He went on to say, And there are many who do not even know that there is a life of abiding rest, joy, satisfaction, and power. And many others who, while they think there must be something beyond the life they know, are in ignorance as to how to obtain it. He repetitively, each chapter opens with Psalm 62.11, where the psalmist wrote, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that you, O Lord, belong, to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. There's a theological position that, that I believe we in the West have largely missed. A presentation throughout the scriptures. We've, we've primarily taught that, that Christianity is about having an hour of salvation. And that you confess faith and are forgiven in that hour. And in that hour you may have a great high, a great experience with the Holy Spirit. And all of that is true and wonderful and beautiful but the testimony of the scripture was never that you should pray a single prayer have an encounter and then live the rest of your life in mundane sluggish spirituality the testimony of scripture was always again that Christ would not leave us as orphans but he would send to us the person and the power of the Holy Spirit 
Hear Tori's words. Many are unaware that there is a life of rest and peace and joy and power in the Spirit. While many others say, I have no idea how to obtain it. I'm afraid that that's largely where we are today in American Christianity. Much of the church would say, I didn't even know there was a life of fullness of power in the Spirit. Much less how to obtain it. Andrew Murray wrote um, a book called How to Obtain the Higher Life, the Deeper Life, something or along that means. And in that book, he talked about um, the parable of the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son returns back to the father, you remember, and the father kills the fattened calf and has a great feast, a celebration. And the older brother says, I've served you faithfully. You've never thrown a feast for me. You've never given me a fattened calf. Then the father says to the older brother, is not all that I have yours? In other words, Murray says that, that the church oftentimes, like the older brother, serves God out of a spirit of, of trying to be faithful and, and trying to press through in a spirit of, of grit. But, but many times we forget that the father says, all that I have is yours. Ask. I haven't asked you to serve me out of lack. I've asked you to serve me out of abundance of power in my spirit. Tory argues that the believer must learn to access the power that belongs to God in the word. The power that belongs to God through the blood of Christ, through the person of the Holy Spirit. The power that belongs to God that comes to us in total surrender. And the power that belongs to God and we have access to in prayer. Any pastor, preacher, teacher, or layman who leads you to embrace a Christian life that is powerless and mundane has missed something so sweet, the very inheritance of the church. Any pastor, teacher, prophet or layman that leads you to live out a Christian life void of intimacy with the power and the person of the Holy Spirit has led you astray. This Christian life is not meant to be lived in our own strength. It's meant to be lived totally surrendered to the person of the Holy Ghost. How long will we deny him? How long will we continue to pretend like we've got this all sorted out in the strength of our flesh? When will we, we acknowledge the words of Paul when he says, be, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, church. Be filled with the Holy Ghost. Put off the old man and put on the new man. Listen to Paul in Galatians 4 and 5. The Spirit and the flesh are opposed to one another. You're called to live the Christian life in the Spirit. Not leaning on the strength of your flesh. Not leaning on the the power and the wisdom of man or the strength of your charisma or the grit of your soul. But to live your life dedicated to the power and the person of the Holy Ghost. And if you don't, if you don't have him, by God, fast, man. Pray. Put your face in the ground and weep until you have a fresh encounter with the Holy Ghost. That was always the inheritance of the church. Now, why y'all got me mad already? I don't know. (laughs) What struck me in particular as I read Tori recently was this line. There are many who don't even know that there is a life of abiding rest, 
joy and satisfaction and power. I'd like to show you this morning that the power of God towards the saints manifested in his people is the foundation of real rest and satisfaction. As we know God's power abundantly, then we experience joy in the spirit. We think of power and our minds immediately go to the TV preacher who's slapping people in the face and they fall over. I believe God can knock you on your butt. He's knocked me on my butt a time or two. But there's no doubt that there is an element of showmanship in that at times. But the power of God is not just for showmanship. You hear me? The power of God is not just to put some man on TV and hopefully have some kind of encounter and the encounter maybe will vindicate our theological positions and prove to the world that we were right all along about what we said. The power of God is not that. The power of God is to satisfy the longing in your soul. The power of God is to meet you in the secret place so that you can dwell with the God who made you. The power of God in the word, the spirit, and the blood is to bring us to rest and joy and peace. God's power on my life is not for showmanship. God's power on my life is so that when I face great oppression from the enemy, when I walk through valleys of darkness, shadows of death, when I experience warfare as demonic powers and principalities try to oppress me and snuff me out, I rest in the power of God. I'm sustained by his own strength and I'm victorious by the blood of Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. Why is the church weak? Because somewhere along the way we thought we were supposed to do this in our own strength. Do you know that kind of Christian life? The kind of Christian life that wakes up in the morning, sits before the word, encounters the sweetness of God? Do you know the kind of Christian life that when you feel oppressed, all you know to do is lay on the ground and pray and cry? Do you know the kind of Christian life that's totally surrendered to God's wills and God's will and plan and and ways? Do you know the kind of Christian life that knows what it feels like to have the Spirit of God rush upon you? Do you know that kind of Christian life? Or do you know modern, shallow, Western, primarily intellectual Christianity? Nothing wrong with using your intellect want to be good stewards of the word, but I have a soul that needs to be fed. I have a soul that needs to walk with God. And this morning, it's my deep prayer that we become a church with fire that resides in our souls. Not power for showmanship, but power for perseverance. The day's coming. I promise you this. The day's coming our way. Showmanship will be good for nothing. We will need power for perseverance. When we're oppressed and mocked, many will turn and walk away. When Christianity is no longer popular or socially acceptable, many will bow their heads and tuck their tails. When there, if there ever is violence in our country concerning those who, who obey Christ, there will be many who bite their nails and walk away. But those who persevere will know the power of God in their souls. Today we read Joshua leading Israel through the Jordan River. Where God says, I'll stop the raging Jordan River. 
so that you will know that you will be successful and take the land. In other words, I will put on display my omnipotent power before you, stopping the Jordan River in the flood season, so that you will know that in the coming days you'll have victory. So that your anxiety will be met, will be consumed by the display of my own glory. Your fear will have nothing to say when the water stops upstream. Let's read Joshua 3, verses 1 through 17. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you, into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as these bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Notice the parentheses here. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan and flowing toward the Sea of Araba, that's the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all of Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, of grumbling and moaning, 40 years of lack and sorrow, at least longing for a home, is, is coming to an end. The day has arrived. Notice the scripture says, watch where the ark's going because you haven't been this way before. You don't know where you're going. Now the leaders began to scatter throughout the camp to provide instruction. When you see the ark move, Rise up and follow it. 
Notice what Joshua says. Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders in your midst. Consecrate yourselves. That's the command of the hour. God's getting ready to move in power. God will perform great wonders in the midst of his people. Consecrate yourselves. Have we lost that message in the church? Consecrate yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. Be set apart. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Be consecrated. For the Lord your God is preparing wondrous acts. Be set apart. R.A. Tori again wrote on the power of the surrendered life. He says, power belongeth unto God, but there is one condition upon which power is bestowed upon us. That condition is absolute surrender. I grew up in a Christian setting where I never heard... With Tori, I never heard that there was such power. I grew up in a setting where I struggled with sin and was always taught that the blood of Christ forgives our sins and thank God for that. But as I sinned, all I was taught was thank God that the blood of Christ forgives your sin. But my soul is saying, but I'm still bound. But I'd like to quit. Thank God he forgives you of your sin. Thank God He forgives you of your sin. Which again is beautiful. But at some point in the Christian life, we must come to the clear message and testimony of Scripture where God calls you to consecrate yourselves, to surrender unto Him. That in surrender, the power of the Holy Ghost gives us the strength to what Paul calls in Romans chapter 8, to mortify the flesh. I am not called to a life to be, that is governed by my sinful desires. Because again, according to Galatians, four or five and onward. The desires of my flesh are opposed to the desires of the Spirit. And God in the cross has given me access to the person of the Spirit. And I have access to a life of the power of the Spirit where the desires of the Spirit are primary, central, and frontal in my inner man. As I struggle with sin, the Scripture calls me to come and die, to totally surrender, to put yourself on the altar. And when I get on the altar, the promise is that the fire of God will meet me there. I was told all my Christian life, thank God there's forgiveness. And again, thank God there's forgiveness. But at some point in your Christian journey, by God, get on the altar. Cry out for the holy flame of God to deliver you. The forgiveness of God is not to be used as an excuse for half-heartedness. The grace of God was never an excuse to continue in your sin. Romans chapter 6. What then? Should we continue in our sin? Paul says, of course not. How can those who are dead to sin continue in sin? The forgiveness of God is not an excuse to live half-hearted. To really love the forgiveness of God, to honor the blood of Christ, is to live a life totally dedicated to it. Sanctify yourselves and see God move, Joshua says. Why are we so unwilling to call the body to total surrender? And until we do so, we'll find 
ourselves weak and frail. The Spirit settles among the consecrated. Consecrate yourselves. For God's getting ready to do a mighty work. This is a continual pattern in Israel. We're getting ready to go to war. Sanctify yourselves so that the power of the Spirit will be in our midst. To Joshua's first command. Consecrate yourselves. For God's power is getting ready to manifest. Consecrate yourselves and... Then Joshua says to the priest, Pick up the ark... And then go walk in the middle of the Jordan and stand still. Recognize what the text told us about this time of year. This is clearly spring where the Jordan floods because um, as, as the Jordan flows down from the mountains, the mountain caps are melting. The water flows down and it, it's flowing with raging speed and it floods everywhere. And so when, when Joshua says to the priest, I want you to go stand in the middle of the Jordan, there's a bit of... Okay. <laughs> Whatever you say, we'll do. There, there, there's a, like, that, that's not very logical. Yet the command remains, stand in the middle of the river. And again, there are going to be days ahead where God commands us to act in ways that defy our logic. And as we act in obedience, we'll see the God who defies natural law. Right? He, he asked Israel, stand in the river because the river does what I tell it to do. Now what becomes very clear is that God is preparing to part the Jordan River in the same way that he parted the Red Sea. There's repetition here. There's a foreshadowing and a foretelling of what's to come. At this point, remember that the entire wilderness generation has passed away, except for two men, Joshua and Caleb. So Joshua and Caleb would have walked through the Red Sea and would have remembered what it was like to watch that great body of water stand up and stand still. They would have remembered that when they came across, their shoes were dry, not muddy and sluggish. Others have heard this account for decades, that the waters just walled up. And that as the Egyptian soldiers came through, they were just consumed So why repeat this miracle now? Why stop the Jordan River? Matthew Henry says, to show that God has the same power to finish the salvation of His people that He had to begin it. In other words, God not only brings us out of Egypt, but He has the power and the sufficiency to bring us into the promise that He's faithful to finish what He started. Neither the Red Sea nor the Jordan River have the might to stop God. Even in flooding season, even when all seems to be falling apart, even when the waters are rushing down on your head, God says, go stand in the middle of the river. I am competent. Competent to lead you out. The Egyptians can pin you down against the Red Sea. I'll just part the thing. And I'm competent to lead you in. I understand that it's flooding season. We could wait till another time of year when the river dries up so we can walk across, but I don't have to obey the laws of nature. I'll just split it. And I'll show you that the same power that brought you out is the power that will bring you in. For us, remember that God delivers us from iniquity at salvation. 
He forgives us fully at salvation, washes us in the blood of the Lamb. But scripturally speaking, salvation has several tenses. So the scriptures will say, you were saved as you gave your life to Christ. As you submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, you were saved, fully grafted into the family of God. And then the scriptures will say, you are being saved. Meaning, you are in the process of being delivered from sinful patterns. You are in the process of becoming like Christ. You are in the process of being picked and peeled so that your, 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 the likeness of Christ begins to be exposed to you. You are being saved currently. And then the scriptures will say, on the last day, you shall be saved. And that's the day when we'll see Christ Jesus face to face. That's the day when I will be delivered from the very presence of sin. Remember, we've talked about this before. This is pretty common. At salvation, we're delivered from the punishment of sin. Through sanctification, I'm delivered from the power of sin. At final redemption, the day I see Christ, I'll be delivered from the very presence of sin. And what God is saying to the people of Israel, and by consequence us through this story, is what he started, he will finish. My power is sufficient. What is the implication? Rest. Breathe. I'm able. Breathe. Don't bite your nails. Don't live a life of striving and fear and anxiety. Rest in my sufficiency, in my power. Why else would God repeat this miracle? I think it's plain. There are, there are a lot of ideas. I don't have the time to run through them all. But I think it's rather plain, again, to see that the generation coming across the Jordan is not the same generation that came out of the wilderness. So in a way, God is saying this. The power that I showed your fathers, I'll show you today. The way that I delivered and led your fathers, I will deliver and lead you. I am the God of, of Isaac and Jacob, of Moses and Abraham. I am the God of the patriarchs. And my promises are to you today, Israel. And again, the principle lies there for us. He's the God of Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakenings. He's the God of the great reformers with boldness and passion. He's the God of the early church who, even when they were brought to the martyr's death still worshipped with power and strength. He's the God of Acts where the sick were healed and the blind were sight were recovered and the dead were raised. He is the God who is able to heal, deliver. He's the God of our fathers and He is today our same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He did not lose His omnipotence. He did not decide to lean back. He has not become passive. He has not lost one ounce of His characteristics that are totally unique to Him. The God who brought great revival on this nation is still our God today. And if we will turn to Him, if we will bow our knee, if we will repent and confess Him as Lord, we'll see a move of the Spirit today. He hasn't quit doing that. He hasn't lost the ability to do that. God is not just the God who brings me out. He is the God that brings me in. And the God that delivered my grandparents and my great-grandparents. The God who released revival and awakening in the days of Charles Finney. He is my God.
Notice what he says to Joshua. To tell the people, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will without fail drive out your enemies from before you. So again, God said, I'm going to stop the raging river so that you will see my power and know that I am able to lead you into the land. So that you will see my strength and will walk in confidence in the days ahead that I am able to drive out from before you the Canaanites. God is saying, I understand that you feel like a weak people. Think of Israel again, nomads. They ain't, they ain't got no chariots. Right? We talked about it. You want us to go do what? God is saying, I, I understand that you feel like a weak people. The scripture tells us this over and over in the prophets, that God chose a small people group, an insignificant people group, because God never wanted anyone to be able to say, of course Assyria is dominant. Of course Assyria could, could conquer the, the Canaanites. He always wanted people to say, how in the world did they do that? How did Gideon drive out the Midianites? So God's saying to Israel here, watch what I can do. I understand you feel insignificant and weak. I'm not asking you to be confident in your own strength. And again, in the days ahead, I hear God saying to us, watch what I will do. I'm not asking you to be sufficient in your own strength. I'm not asking you to be wise beyond your years. I'm not asking you to, to conjure up some charisma and leadership skills. I'm asking you to rest in my sufficiency and cast yourself upon my abilities. So verse 13 says, When the soles of the feet of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above, coming down from the mountain, shall stand in one heap. And imagine that, that when the priest's feet touched the water, the river stopped. Imagine that what God said would happen, happened. Imagine that God is able to accomplish what he said he'll accomplish. So from here, we've stumbled into a final theme that, that I'll approach and then we'll work towards closing. The central... One of the central themes of this passage is the Ark of the Covenant, right? The priests sort of walk in the river carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The, the people of Israel are to follow the Ark of the Covenant. Where God's presence goes, you go. When God's presence moves, you move. You're not to stand in the river and shout and scream and confess. You're to stand in the river holding God's presence. They're not to trust in the brilliance of Joshua, though Joshua is a brilliant military leader. They're not to conjure up their own ideas and ways. They're not to build little boats and ships or throw a rope across and drag each other with a rope. They're not to conjure up some way to cross this river in their own abilities. They're simply to carry the ark. Numbers 10, verse 35. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. Moses taught Israel the significance and priority of the presence of God. Remembering again Exodus 33 where Moses says to the Lord, If you don't go with us, I'm not going. David knew this principle very well when he faced Goliath. And Goliath laughed at him coming with sticks and stones. 
And David says, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Psalm 33, verse 16 through 17. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warriors escape by his great strength. The horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. When they faced the Red Sea and Egypt was breathing down their back, God didn't say, swim, let's see what you got, Michael Phelps. And as the Jordan is raging and sweeping, God doesn't say, carve a boat, man, figure it out. God says, carry my ark in the middle of the river. And soon enough, it'll be Jericho's walls. Should they scale them? Should they just try to hurl stuff over? And God will say, just walk around. When Israel has victory, it will always be because of who Israel's God is. There's a very firm biblical principle throughout Scripture that we learn about Israel. And and that's what Psalm 33 was saying. Israel is not victorious by the strength of her king. Israel is not victorious by the, the wisdom and the tactics of her military leaders. Horses don't save. Chariots don't save. All of Israel's success will be because of who Israel's God is. Why? You know the answer to this. Because again, God chose a small and insignificant people to use with great power so that his name would be glorified. So that as his supernatural strength is seen, the nations will go. That God is much more superior and sovereign than these little idols we worship. He gets the praise and he gets the glory. We need to make sure that we're always exalting Him for what's accomplished in our midst. When there's healing and salvation, it's to God's glory. When there's deliverance, it's unto the name of Jesus. We have no natural solutions. We have no programs or agendas. We have no five steps to healing and wholeness and happiness. We have one message, the presence and power of God bought for us on the cross of Calvary by the blood of Jesus, is available to you for life and life abundantly. And when life and life abundantly is accessed, we don't get to say, yeah, five steps to happiness and wholeness. We say, oh, the power of the cross and the person of the Spirit. He is after His own glory. But I I just want to articulate this point quickly. In, in order to properly glorify God, you, have, you must have some ability to articulate, categorize God's attributes, right? Like, like glory is, is, is not to glorify, to praise, is not to just heap up empty, meaningless statements like, be glorified. That, that, that's to mean something. So, so when we glorify God, when we worship God, we may, we may worship His majesty. I worship your majesty, your brilliance, your splendor. When I worship God, I, I, I worship His attributes. I worship your holiness, your sovereignty. I worship your great wisdom, your foreknowledge. Lord, I worship you as the God who is compassionate and kind. And so what we see here is that God is after glory. He's after the nations to look to him and to say, look how powerful he is. But there's another very prominent theme here that you miss. That, and it's this, that God is, God wants to be glorified as the faithful, steadfast, loving God of Israel. Right? So it's, so it's not just saying, he's, he's God. 
He's not just after a people who say, look, he's the one. He's after a people who will zone in and say, he is the faithful God of Israel. He is the one who is steadfast. His love endures from generation to generation. And so even the ark, the ark is not just a box which represents God's presence. By God, there's a mercy seat on top of the thing. So as it's carried across the river, Israel remembers that he is the merciful God to a rebellious people. And so again, we're not just glorifying some kind of empty set of attributes. We're glorifying a God with specific sets of attributes. He is a merciful, omnipotent God. He is delivering us, not only because he's able, but because he loves us. He is delivering us not only to show off his great power, but to show off his steadfast love to his people, his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. He is not a God who is attribute-less. He has attributes to be glorified. In the same sense, when we glorify God for bringing us to salvation, when we glorify God for healing the sick in our midst, when we glorify God for the presence of the Lord that sweeps over us, when we glorify God for delivering the demonically oppressed, we are glorifying His power and ability to do so, but we're also glorifying His love towards us, His mercy towards us. We are saying, you are the God who is gracious so, so the display of God's power is an invitation to understand to a greater revelation of his heart. You understand what I'm saying here? The display of God's power by parting the Jordan is an invitation for Israel to step into a greater revelation of God's heart towards her. And that's why the, the, the entire emphasis here is that the, the power of God is to bring us into a greater revelation of his love and care for his people and to bring us to a place of peace, rest, and satisfaction in God. His power, again, is not about showmanship. It's about the ache in my soul being satisfied in the person of Jesus. At times, God may use me on a platform, of course, but the power of God meets with me in the secret place. It lifts me up from the miry clay. When I am depressed and discouraged and anxious, the power of the person of the Spirit settles in my soul and drives out all anxiety. And I say in that moment, you are able to deliver me because you are the God who loves me and will never leave me nor forsake me. You are the God whose steadfast love endures throughout all generations. You are the merciful God of the universe who passes over my sins because of the cross. You are the God who is gracious. So the power of God here on display invites Israel into a greater revelation of God's character as a faithful God, the fulfiller of promise. I've got 15 pages left. I'll send them to you in an email. Of course, Israel could have refused to follow the ark. They could have said, no, I'm not following that box. They could have said, let's, let's build boats. Noah did it. We built a boat. Let's, somebody, somebody weave together some ropes. But that would have been exhausting. And of course they're risking just being swept away by the river. Or they could have just said, man, I'm following that box. I'll just live out here in the wilderness. It'll be all right. Rather live in the desert than be slaughtered in the land. 
And churches very much have the same dilemma. We can say, we got this. We'll figure this out. Build a boat. Get some ropes. We'll make this happen. We'll see our children come to know Jesus through our strategies and plans. We'll see our community have, have righteousness through our programming. We'll get better leaders, better strategies. We could try to swim with our own personal strength. Or the church could just not try at all. We've seen that in the West. The church just, you know, sit in the pew, man. We'll sing some songs. It'll be nice. Or we could be a spirit-led people who say when the ark moves, we move. We say our trust and our rest is in the person of the Holy Ghost. And we're not, we're not attempting to do anything outside of his covering and leading. We could worship as if he's actually in the room. We could preach and teach and spur one another on and believing that God is with us and intervening on our behalf. When our children go astray, rather than just finding some program to try to send them to, we could like get on the ground and pray together, call a fast. We could allow the Holy Spirit to be the center and to believe with our whole hearts that He is in our midst and loves us and will not leave us. We could believe with all of ourselves that He is who He says He is. And that, my friends, would be good for our souls. That is good for the soul of the church. We could rest. We could watch the river rage. And then we could watch the river stand still at a great heap. We could breathe as he cares for his people. We could assure our children, he delivered me, he'll deliver you. He was faithful to me, he'll be faithful to you. Are we a spirit-led church in practice or are we a spirit-led church in doctrine only? And that makes all the difference in the world. I have no want to simply be a part of a church who is, who is spirit-led in, in doctrine. I want to be a part of a church who knows the sweet leading of the Holy Ghost. Are we men and women of the flesh or are we men and women of the spirit? Worship team, come for me. I am a proponent of the idea that you have as much of God today as you want. Meaning that... that that all of, all, all of eternity will be searching God out. Our, our, our finite brains don't have the ability to comprehend, nor to articulate, nor to even encounter all of who God is, God is. That's why angelic beings and prophets, they just fall on their face because they can't possibly stand in His presence. So all of eternity will just be this process of, 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 of constantly learning and growing and experiencing and knowing who God is. And it'll be glorious and splendid. So to have the, the, the incredible, ignorant and an arrogant posture that you know all of God today or you have all of God today is is forgive me for saying this but is stupid beyond stupid right so so we do not have or know we haven't experienced all of God we never will we'll constantly be growing in our experience when you say that you have all of God today that you want, what that means is that God is not hiding himself or shadowing himself from his people. That, that the hungry always find him. The thirsty always know him. 
that what happens is we become so content and we become kind of comfortable in the mundane, shallow life and we forget that God has called us to live with fire in our souls. So we quit praying, we quit reading, we quit walking in obedience. And we, we allow life to become really about our own pleasure and our own wants. And if we could just kind of have a happy, you know, happy, somewhat fulfilled life, we're, we're good with that. But I believe that God is raising up a church in this hour who knows hunger. I believe that work your way through the through judges. And what you find is God raising up a man like Gideon in the scripture saying that God clothed Gideon. God put Gideon on like a glove. You ever heard that one? Or when you find um, Saul, when Saul's anointed, it says that the spirit rushed upon him and his entire person was changed by the presence of God. And when David was anointed, when Samuel called him out of the field and anointed David, it said from that day forward, the spirit of God rested upon David. I believe God is looking for a people who will, who will long after and thirst after the spirit to rush upon them will accomplish great exploits in the name of Jesus. Get serious about the kingdom of God coming, not through their personality, but through the strength of the Spirit. People who are totally surrendered. And I believe the, the primary dilemma here is that we are comfortable without Him. Right? Like we're satisfied and content without Him in, in modern American Western Christianity. I'm asking you today... To abandon that posture totally. I say we light that thing on fire and let that go. I say we get uncomfortable and let our posture be, God, we need more of you. God, we've got to see you. We need to know you. We need to, we need to encounter you in our midst. God, my children don't need to just hear about you. They need to know what it is to walk in a room where your glory is manifested. God, you've done it in generations past. You've moved people to, to weeping and tears and conviction. You've saved drunkards and prostitutes. Lord, you're able to do it today. Go ahead and stand to your feet. this morning if you've never surrendered your life to Christ we want you to know that there is forgiveness in the blood of Jesus that the cross was for you that Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to bear the weight of your sin you wouldn't be punished for all of your evil acts Jesus died so that you would be washed and God would receive you as if you lived a perfect life we know you haven't right scripturally speaking all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God all are rebellious the only way anyone makes it into God's kingdom, into heaven, is to be forgiven because of the cross. You are not being kept out of God's kingdom today because of your bad mis- decisions. You're slow. You're going to make bad decisions, okay? The only thing that's keeping us out of God's kingdom is our unwillingness to bow our knee to Jesus. To receive the forgiveness of the cross. Today you may say, my guilt is heaped up. Man, I'm guilty. And we want you to know that the blood of Jesus will wash you today. Today's the day of salvation. You don't have to walk out of here in rebellion. You don't have to walk out of here powerless. So altar team, if you get in place. So the first thing is if you need to give your life to Christ, today's the day. I beg you, don't leave this place in rebellion. Life is quick and short. Tomorrow's not promised. Next, we believe that today is a significant day in our body where God is calling us to commit ourselves to his presence. 
So I'm asking you, if you'd say, man, in my life, I, I just need more of him. I just want more of his presence. I just need the ark to lead me. If that's you today, I want to ask you to spend some time in the altar before you leave. I want to ask you to allow someone to lay hands on you and to pray for an impartation of God's spirit. There are some of you here who are frustrated, anxious, depressed. The the events of this week have you in a place of sorrow. I want to ask you to come today. We believe that the peace of God is here. If you're dealing with any sickness, there was some a word that there may be someone dealing with repetitive acid reflux. We believe God's here to heal you. All right, the altars are open. If you need Jesus, come. If you want to covenant with God today to be a people of his presence, come. Come on, get hungry this morning. Come on, somebody get thirsty in this house. Lord, I'm tired of going through the motions. Lord, we're, we're tired of performance-based religion. You said you'd give us life and life abundantly. You said out of our bellies would flow rivers of living water. Holy Spirit, we love you. Lord, today we covenant to be a people who follow the earth. A people led by the cloud. Lord, today we resist the strength of the flesh. We ask that the desires of the spirit would well up within us. We are hungry, Lord. tell him just for another minute you're the center of my life God you satisfy Holy Spirit just for me I love you I need you but I don't want to live a life void of your presence I don't want to live a life going through the motions I don't want to live mundane I don't want to live lukewarm fill my belly with fire let your Holy Spirit rush upon me Lord, make me a vessel of your presence, useful to the master. I want to be useful to you, God. Show me your face. Show me your ways. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I love you. I love you. I love you. Thank you, Jesus. I love you. 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 So 
set a fire down in my soul I can't contain, I can't control I want more of you, God I want more of you, God To set a fire down in my soul I can't contain that I can't control I want more of you, God I want more of you, God To set a fire down in my soul I can't contain that I can't control I want more of you, God I want more of you, God To set a fire down in my soul I can't contain, I can't control I want more of you, God I want more so set to set a fire down in my soul. I can't contain that I can't control. I want more of you, God. I want more of you, God. To set a fire down in my soul. And I can't contain that I can't control. I want more of you, God. We're going to leave the altars open. Um, the worship team is going to hang in. So if you need ministry, don't rush out of here. If you want to sit and just pray for a minute, you're welcome to. But if not, you are officially dismissed. We love you so much. We pray that your hearts would burn with passion for Jesus. And can't wait to worship with you again. Hallelujah. Thank you for worshiping with us. And I want more of you, God. I want more of you. Set a fire down in my soul I can't contain that I can't control I want more of you, God I want more of you Set a fire down in my soul can't contain, can't control I want more of you, God I want more, I 